Good morning, everyone. It is so good to be here once again with you all. I um. I should mention that uh, last week. Um, last week I I said something when I was describing Jonah, that in hindsight, could have been taken offensively, and uh, I want to make sure that I apologize if anybody did take offense to that. I was only applying it to Jonah, but it, I, it's very reasonable for it to have been thought otherwise. So I apologize if that's the case. I don't want to uh, offend unnecessarily. There's plenty to offend in the scriptures that are the right reason to offend. Um, some, of you may, some of you may have um, remembered praying for my friend George. I told you a story about him, and he's been, uh, he lives in Texas, good friend, uh, one of my most dear friends of about 30 years. Uh, he's been um, battling cancer, and I just found out a few minutes ago that um, he's received his inheritance. So I ask you to pray for me as I, as I preach this morning. Um, and please be praying for his family as uh, one of his daughters is still a teenager. And, um, yeah, they need, they need your prayers this morning. So please be praying for the Veach family. Um, today's an interesting day. Um, happens to fall on, uh, Sunday happens to fall on uh, October 31st, which is uh, one holiday that we celebrate as Reformation Day. So happy Reformation Day. Right? Woo! Uh, that's uh, that's the, the date that uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the uh, door at the Cathedral in Wittenberg. And uh, so, uh, but there's some background to that. Um, there are, we have all kinds of traditions, and Christians fight about this day more than <laughs> just about anything else. And we shouldn't fight. Um, we need to live in harmony with one another. Uh, despite our various opinions on things. Uh, let me tell you the history behind uh, this. Long before there was any other traditions or anything, the Christians, before even Constantine, before persecution ended, uh, the Christians got together and decided we need to find a way to honor the memories of the martyrs. In fact, Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, they, in fact, the word Halloween, the word hallow means saints, whom they, uh, which is what they called the martyrs at the time. And uh, then especially after um, persecution ended under Constantine, it became doubly important uh, to remember the martyrs, much in the same way that, remember, that we remember those who were killed in, um, at Pearl Harbor or in 9-11, um, in in during 9-11. Um, but uh, that is, it, it is a very holy thing that we, that we remember those who would not deny their confession of faith to Jesus Christ and lost their lives for it. So, if we can't agree on anything else, let's remember today to honor those who came before us. And think about the message that it sent when Martin Luther on this day, dealing with indulgences and all that, nailed the 95 theses to the door. Think about the message that sent. Um, so let's agree. Let's pray for the persecuted church today. There are people being martyred as we speak. Um, and let's pray for uh, those who are suffering, who will not deny the faith, um, and pray that uh, we uh, would have that same strength and that same faith and remember uh, the um, martyrs past as a rich legacy in our church. Uh, we're in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah chapter 2. Um, yeah, Jonah chapter 2. Um, pay close attention to this one. We're going to read the whole chapter. Just 10 verses. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord 
out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up upon dry land. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come together today to hear your word, we ask uh, that you would also turn our attention to our dear brothers and sisters who, are, who have suffered for your name's sake. We ask your mercy on those presently suffering and dying because they refuse to deny you as we here worship you in relative peace. We pray that our dear, holy, martyred brothers and sisters are doubly blessed in your kingdom forever. We thank you that through all of the strange, dubious, and questionable traditions that surround us, we can still honor the memory of your saints, for we all agree with Tertullian, who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We thank you, O God, for them. And we humbly now submit our hearts and our minds to you. We turn our attention to your holy word that you, our good God, has given us. We open your scriptures this morning to learn from you so that we may be more like you. We give this time over to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, when you're a parent, you often find the strangest things will come out of your mouth. Uh, You'll say things to your children that you never imagined you would direct at another human being. Because the things that make perfect sense to children just simply make no rational sense. Here are some of the odd phrases that have formed and were expressed by me. Firewood is not a sword. How many of you said this one? The coffee table is not a diving board. Yeah, right? Some of us... Okay, how about this? This is a good one. Please don't push daddy's eyeballs out with your thumb. This, that actually came out of my mouth. Or this one. Why did you choose to ride your tricycle down the stairs? That happened too. How about this one? Don't feed your brother an apple while he's... Okay, you know what? I'm going to leave that one alone. I'll, let you, I'll leave that to your imagination. No bathroom humor here. I'm not that edgy, I guess. Never did I imagine that I would string those English words together to form a sentence and direct them at another human being. And some of the things they do, right? Like we bought a van less than a year and a half, less than two years ago, really. It was almost brand new. We got a great deal on it. It was still under warranty. Uh, I don't think that we'd had it for more than a couple of months before one of our children and the neighbor kid decided that they would help us and fill the gas tank with gravel. That was a fun day. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, <laughs> the conversations are even more entertaining. I was going I w- I to scold one of my kids for running in the house or throwing a football at my grandmother's antique lamps or something. I don't know what it was, but I call him over, um, and, and this is a number of years ago, and before I could say anything, He says, Daddy, why do I see two of you? Wait, what? (laughs) Well, I know there's only one of you, but I see two. So, like the good medical doctor that I am, I put two fingers up. How many fingers am I holding up? Well, I know it's two, but I see four. Well, it turns out that he'd been writing his bike a few hours before, 
And so I asked if he had crashed. Well, I was trying to see how fast I could ride down the hill, and I crashed into the tree. Were you wearing your helmet? Yes. Did your helmet hit the tree, or did your head hit the tree? Well, the first time... <laughs> get in the truck, kid. We're going to go sit in the waiting room with a bunch of sick people for the rest of the night. Oh, man. There's an awareness and a reason that just doesn't exist in some people, especially children and Jonah. But even adults, have you ever known someone with very little self-awareness? I can be that guy someday, sometimes, right? You know this person with very little self-awareness? Or the kid who's fully convinced that their argument is bulletproof and they are completely unaware of how ridiculous they sound. Like, for example, when they walk in after a grueling day of playing and hanging out with friends and feel that they're entitled to hijack the television that, you've been, that you're watching after you've been having fun flying kites all day at work. That's Jonah, right? It's amazing how many people, even Bible commentators and scholars, fail to see sometimes how disjointed Jonah's psalm is here. This prayer is dripping with a lack of self-awareness and humility. Let's start with the context. We're with Jonah in the belly of some great fish or whale. It's outlandish, right? It's ridiculous. Could never happen, right? Okay, of course it is. Even Jerome, long before the Middle Ages, when they were so much less intelligent than we are today, um, understood how incredible it would be for someone to survive in the belly of a whale. It's just obvious. But here's what he, he also noticed some other things. He noticed and pointed to in other incredible events in history that are recorded in Scripture. Like, for example, remember the three guys that were thrown into the fire, fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is a furnace, right? And they're walking around like, is it hot in here? You know, and, and then, the, th then there's a fourth one that shows up that looks like the Son of God, and the guys on outside of the furnace are going, that's so hot. Who's that fourth guy? And the other guys, they're just walking around. They come out unscathed. Jerome notices that, and then he notices the, what he describes as the, the Red Sea standing up as walls on both sides so that the Israelites can cross the sea floor on dry ground. You see, Jerome noticed, as we should, that this account of Jonah is no more legend than any other miracle recorded in Scripture. It really, really, it actually happened. This happened. And what had led to the situation is that God told him to go to Nineveh and call out against it. Now, sometimes we don't notice the obvious when we know the end of the story. Notice here, God doesn't even say to bring the good news. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to have mercy on them. He doesn't say to evangelize them. He just says, go call out against them. Well, we know that Jonah hated the Ninevites because they were Assyrians and the Assyrians were bad. And so what that tells me is that one of two things are happening when Jonah tried to outrun our all-powerful God in a wooden boat. Either he was too afraid of what the Ninevites would do to him, and they were an especially violent society. Or the, the other option is that Jonah knew how merciful God is, and his hatred of the Assyrians, of which the, the people of Nineveh were, was so strong that he couldn't stomach the idea of the Ninevites receiving mercy. And based on what we'll read next week, I believe that number two is the more correct answer. Now, here, here's a thought I find worth chewing on for a bit. One commentator felt that sending the fish was actually a rescue of Jonah. And that could be taken a couple of different ways. But the first thing is the fish got him back to shore eventually. So, yeah, definitely there's a rescue there, um, you know, half digested or not. But second, this could be a form of judgment to get Jonah's attention directed back towards God. See, because calling out to God from a place of distress is good. But, but here's the thing, even though we should do that, if it's the only time we call out to God, we reveal that our affection is not for God, but for ourselves. And I think that we're going to see a hint of that here with Jonah. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. 
So far, it's the first obvious right thing we see Jonah doing. Uh, but, you know, we can do the right things for the wrong reasons, right? How many have been there? Wrong heart, wrong reasons, wrong motive. I, I think that's what we're seeing here. In fact, this is the first place we even see Jonah acknowledging God directly at all. This is what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, when we are aroused from spiritual lethargy, we become conscious of the weight of God's judgment. We recognize that we are in the presence of a holy God and yet have lived without a thought for his majesty. And so verse 2 is what begins the psalm. There's a Hebrew poetic structure involved here. We're not going to get into that, but there's a pattern. And some of the pattern deals with the construction of the poem. But for today, what we're going to be concerned with is the content of this psalm. And there are some patterns there too. So as we go through this prayer, I want to ask you to take note of past, present, and future tenses and where they are. Jonah 2, verse 2, it, sa uh, it says, I called out to the Lord, this is Jonah speaking, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now notice that he's giving thanks for the past. It's, it's reminiscent of, of a lot of the Psalms that we read in the book of Psalms, which, which he probably had been made aware of and, and even had probably memorized. For example, Psalm 4.1, it says, Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So here the psalmist is appealing to the past for a present request. In Psalm 22.24, it says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And then in Psalm 120, verse 1, it says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. So it's clear that God hears his people when his people call on him. In fact, he tells us to do that. He tells us to call out on him. 1 Peter 5, 7 says to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I love the imagery of that because it deals with the lifting the, a great burden on a pack mule. It's the same kind of picture that we have. In other words, cast those things that bring anxiety to you upon God because the things that matter to you deeply matter to him. So Jonah says here that he is in Sheol. Now, the first definition of that is, is Hades or the world of the dead as it was seen as being under or at the center of the earth. It can also re refer to the grave or to hell or to a pit. Uh, the, the, it, it's not necessarily speaking of, or it's not really speaking of uh, this idea of purgatory. Uh, we don't agree with that. That's not real. Um, but a place, a waiting place of judgment or it could also be indicative of other things. Um, but Psalm 16.10 said this, says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. So, so believers will not be there, right? We will not be there. Peter affirmed those words by quoting them in Acts 20, verse 27. In his sermon at Pentecost, he says in Acts 20, 27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. So it would seem like, by the rest of Jonah's prayer here, that Jonah had trouble acknowledging the reason that he was suffering under God's judgment. It almost seems like he's thanking God for rescuing him out of an unjust situation. But there was nothing unjust about it. Jonah made his bed, he's now lying in it, and he doesn't realize that he's being rescued from himself. Jonah is responsible for his own actions. But God is intentional about his activities, and he's having his way with Jonah here, isn't he? Verse 3 of Jonah chapter 2. It says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. Now Jonah makes a really good observation here. He recognizes that God's activities, that it's God's activities that brought him there. He recognized that the wind and the waves belong to God, and, and notice the psalm is absent, though, of any contrition. I don't know why Jonah thought God did what he did, but it still seems like Jonah feels like the victim here. I was out surfing Igor's one day, um, you know, just when I thought it was safe to get back in the water. 
That's a Jaws joke. Um, but Igor's is a, is a small surf spot up against the cliffs in Carlsbad. There's not much beach, just south, south of Tamaracks. But, and there's no lifeguards, but it has this great rock reef, and, and, and the waves just form perfectly. They're just awesome. And I was never a very good surfer, so when I got out there, I realized that the surf was a lot bigger than I thought it was, and the waves were way overhead, and the sets were starting to come in closer and closer together. And so I realized that I, need, I, realized I needed to ride one all the way in and not go, out, go back out there to avoid it becoming a very bad day. So I caught a big, beautiful wave. It's about a 10 or 12-foot face, and I began to lean into it, and I tried to stabilize myself, and I failed. And I got pushed underwater onto the floor. It felt like the, the, the pressure of the water, if you've ever been surfing and been pressed against the floor of the ocean by the weight of that water, it's just intense. And I'm being pushed down against the rock reef here with my leg being pulled up by the leash as the board's flipping around in the air, or at least I assume it is, and, and, and suddenly, snap, my foot drops down to the ground. The, the leash had snapped. Now, if any of you know surfing, when the leash snaps on you, that's a really bad day. So I was able to pop my head up for maybe a second at best to grab a deep gulp of air. And I grabbed it and was just pummeled by wave after wave, and I was caught in the riptide of my life. There was no way I was swimming back in or even anywhere I wanted to go. And the waves kept crashing on me one after the other as I'm just trying to grab gasps of air with salt water flying into my nose and my mouth. And, you know, I, I don't even remember crying out for help to God. I just remember thinking, well, God, I guess this is how it ends. I, you know, like I had just accepted it at that point. I was just like, I'm done. There's no way. But my instincts kind of kept me gasping for air. And at some point, I found myself face first on the beach. The waves just kind of gently licking my feet. And I've never in my life been that exhausted. And I've also never been so happy to be coughing up a mouthful of salt water and sand. In my distress in that moment, God was present in those waves. The leash could not have ever spared me from God's waves. The, the, the board could not have spared me from God's waves. My strength and my ability to swim, which at one point, believe it or not, was actually pretty good, could not save me from God's waves. The marginal buoyancy of my wetsuit could not spare me from God's waves. And my lungs could never save me from God's waves. God is the God of all of those things. And only He could spare me from those waves. The fact that I came out of that alive and not having been crushed by the reef or drowned can only be God's doing. Jonah moves into the present tense there in verse 4. And then in the future tense, Jonah's seeing this idea of rescue. And he, he says, Then... I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Past, present, or past, future, rather. Jonah recognizes that there's distance between he and God and seems to understand that this isn't the end. And so he jumps right back into the past. Verse 5, then the waters closed up over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up on me forever. Yet you brought, me, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now that word pit is different from Sheol. It's literally a pit or a grave. Figuratively, it speaks of destruction or annihilation. And this is the place where Jonah is. And, and we can see this as a picture of the work of Christ to bring us up to new life from the grave because even though Jonah's prayer is a bit disjointed, he's recognizing God's character there. We saw, saw some of that uh, a couple weeks ago with the baptism. Once again, 
we see that the, the use of all capital letters for uh, the word Lord, um, and that when we see all capital letters in our Bible for the word Lord, uh, it's referring to YHWH, or we often pronounce it Yahweh. Um, and so that would be a proper name for God as opposed to like Elohim, which would be more of a generic name. So, um, so that's how that works. Now, um, we're going to see perhaps the, the root of why there are some key elements missing in Jonah's prayer. Let's start with verse 7 on that. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my holy prayer came to you into your holy temple. Well, it may be true that Jonah remembered Yahweh as he was gasping for air. I think that this is a misplaced emphasis on Jonah's part. Have you heard the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes? Of course he was calling out to God, right? He, he, He was in a foxhole. He was in peril. He was calling out. But see, in almost every prayer by faithful people we see in the scriptures, the confession is that Yahweh remembered them, not the other way around, as Jonah said, I remembered the Lord. We see a few exceptions in the Psalms and other places, but none of those have to to do with being delivered from peril. And I believe what that tells us is that there's a complete lack of humility here on Jonah's part. Jonah emphasized, Jonah's emphasis, rather, is on what he is doing for God and completely dismissing the fact that the reason he's in trouble in the first place is that he disobeyed and tried to run from Yahweh. Kevin Youngblood said it this way. He said, Jonah's prayer is void of any acknowledgement of wrongdoing on his part. It is completely lacking in confession and penitence. Now, This is interesting as we move into verse 8. Let's read that, Jonah 2, 8. It says this, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He's he's drawing a distinction here, right? Jonah jumps from past to present here. He's, He's probably referring to the pagan mariners who actually called out to Yahweh before he did. And he had the guts in prayer to begin calling them out. Like at this point, who's Jonah to be criticizing them. Hey, God, look how much better I am than these guys. It's absurd. So humility's out the window. I was, I was watching a, a reality show one time, and I don't know how much of it was scripted, but the main characters go to repossess the church van. The elders of the church are trying to figure out why the van was being repossessed when they had approved the funds, there were plenty of funds there, there wasn't any financial issues, and they finally discover that the pastor was using the van payments to feed his gambling addiction. And the elders, they, was, what was funny about this, and, and I actually love the way this is portrayed, um, whether, whether it was you know, scripted or not, the elders weren't even mad. They, they, they were merciful. They, you know, it was like, hey, you know, let's work this out and get you some help. You know what? We need you here. We love you. We, we want to get you help. We want to make sure that uh, we, we deal with this. Everybody struggles with something, and, and we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. Well, rather than admit to weakness and, and accept the help of his people, the pastor cussed them all out and walked away. Hmm. This is Pride. This is what pride does. There's another, there's another prayer in the Bible that reminds me of, uh, of this point in Jonah's prayer. This is in Luke chapter 18. Why don't you read, open to Luke 18. This is a good one to outline or highlight or whatever you do in your Bibles um, because I have to confess that it describes me so often. Lord, forgive me. Luke 18. This is Jesus speaking. It says also, He told his parable, uh, this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, idolaters, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, 
be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Our prayer life, our faith, the way we interact with one another must be rooted in humility. Had Jonah confessed to his sin and hatred, the rest of this book would be entirely different. And so with the prayer of that Pharisee in mind, let's read Jonah's next piece. Verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, and I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord, he says. So now Jonah goes into the future tense and contrasts his awesomeness to the awfulness of these pagan sailors. You notice that Jonah's congratulating himself for his future faithfulness. Jonah's still contrasting himself with heathens and somehow he sees his faithfulness to God as better than the heathen sailors who called out to Yahweh in the midst of their lack of understanding. Maybe if he were looking at the sailors, he would quote Weird Al Yankovic. Have you heard that song, Amish Paradise? I'll give you a line here. You think you're really righteous? You think you're pure in heart? Well, I know I'm a million times as humble as thou art. I'm the pious guy the little omelets want to be like on my day, knees day and night, scoring points for the afterlife. That's the most you'll ever hear me rap. Um, what frustrates Jonah about God's mercy is that somehow he still feels like he doesn't need it. Somehow he's entitled to God's provision. We would know nothing about that. How often do we despise those in need of God's mercy for their sins while failing to recognize our own desperate need? You see, mercy is a Christian disposition. We must love those in need of God's mercy. I think we often fail to recognize the implications of God's mercy when it comes to us. We love God's mercy when, it com when we deserve His justice, don't we? We tend to feel a little less warm and fuzzy about God's merciful character when we have been wronged and want justice. Nineveh was an Assyrian city, and Jonah knew the horrible things that the Assyrians had done to his people, the Jews. Jonah could not bring himself to forgive and to extend mercy. And listen, when we fail to forgive, we allow bitterness to take root in our lives, and bitterness will decimate us from within. Bitterness will take root and it will grow. It will destroy our relationships with others. It will destroy our relationships in the church. It will destroy our families. It will destroy our prayer life. And ultimately, it will destroy us until we are nothing but a shell of anger and bitterness with no joy whatsoever. And guys, forgiveness is really, really hard. True forgiveness is hard. When we forgive someone, we relinquish our right to be angry. We give that up. We give up our right to be repaid. If we are forgiving a debt, we are relinquishing the right to what is owed to us. It is theirs now. And we take joy in it that means is that we now have to expose ourselves to becoming victims again. Our place in the forgiveness relationship is to restore lost trust that has not been re-earned. Colossians 3:12 through 15 Paul says this put that put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Notice that it doesn't say wait to be asked. And above all these, 
put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. This is not easy. We cannot do this without the strength of God. And granted, there are times when there must be limits in a relationship. There must be boundaries. There, and, and there are also wolves. There are, war, or there are wolves that will come in to, to uh, disrupt or to harm the flock. And, and we have to recognize that for the most part, those are the ones who come in with an intent to spread false teaching or to clearly victimize somebody in the church, some form of tangible harm. And again, there are some wolves that don't realize they're wolves, but Matthew 17, it says, this is Jesus speaking, Matthew 17, 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? See, we all need to be careful, though, who we call a wolf and how we handle it. Let me give an extreme example. I've been in a few church environments where we have had to deal with registered sex offenders. And usually there are two main types in the church. They're the ones that appear to be truly repentant and the ones who insist they're not guilty for some reason or another. And I have some experience with both of those. Um, and, and it's always weird and it's always uncomfortable. And we have people in our church and in any of our churches that are vulnerable but we're also to forgive as Jesus did, which cost him and his follower their lives. So how can we respond to this in a responsible and faithful way? I think the first thing is that we need to take trust off the table. We start with not trying to figure out whether or not or how much we can trust somebody. First off, we're all humans. We can't trust each other anyway. Right? Like seriously. And... and and then we're also called to offer trust that the people around us don't deserve. So let's just forget the trust thing. What we do is do we, begin with, we begin with loving that person. For example, if the person is on the sex offender registry, there are legal boundaries that they must follow and there are temptations that they may or may not struggle with. So one way we show love to somebody is by not putting them in a situation in which they are vulnerable, right? So just like we wouldn't buy a recovering alcoholic a bottle of Jack Daniels for Christmas, that would be unloving and stupid, right? Most of that means that we love the people. So we are to love people and we're grateful to give them areas of service that don't put them in compromising situations. So you don't put the sex offender in the children's ministry. That's not probably the best place. Um, we don't uh, send the recovering cocaine ad addict down to Nicaragua on a missions trip. That might not be wise sometimes. There are things that we just love them by giving other areas of service uh, because we don't want to put them in a compromising situation, again, out of love, whether that's to be tempted or to be questioned or accused of something. Let's root it in love. That's what we do. It isn't so much about trust as it is about loving them. Several years ago, though, I, I did have to ask someone, I did have to ask them not to return to our gathering. It's a fairly rare thing. But the reason was that this person continued to display what was perceived as predatory behavior after being spoken to about it. So, and part of shepherding is protecting. We are responsible to protect one another. But had that person wanted to return 10 years later, it's not a slam dunk. You know, we have to do our best to be discerning. The prodigal betrayed his father. So is this person truly repentant like the prodigal coming back? How did the prodigal's father respond to this person coming back? He ran to him. He embraced him. But we have to be wise. And it's difficult. This is not easy stuff. So how do we love the person and also provide godly protection for our flock? 
We have to do both. We cannot dismiss one at the expense of the other. Thankfully, that person did find another church, and they continued to be fed. And, and I'm sure nobody, or I'm sure that that body, rather, was able to provide uh, an appropriate boundary out of love. But the point is we cannot harbor unforgiveness, and we must be willing to take a risk in order to offer godly mercy to those who have hurt us. Because mercy, I can't think of any place where mercy does not involve risk. In fact, when we're being merciful to those who have caused us harm, we are being an expression of the gospel. We are demonstrating how God saves. Are we willing to risk suffering and betrayal for the sake of the gospel? Jesus was. You know, I, I caused suffering and betrayal to my Lord. And he has been merciful to me. What right do I have to withhold forgiveness and mercy from anyone else? Despite Jonah's failure to acknowledge his own fault, despite his pride and the disjointedness of his prayer, he recognized one of the most important things for us all to keep in mind. Jonah understands God's sovereignty in salvation. But he fails, though, to recognize his own role in needing it. In fact, this is the one thing it seems in this chapter that's a continuous tense. It's past, present, and future at the same time. And I think we often kind of do the same thing. We thank God for saving us, but have a difficult time understanding the depth of our continual need to be saved. And therefore, we add our own merit to God's saving work. God forgive us. Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Reflecting on Jonah, Kevin Youngblood said, notably absent are admissions of guilt or promises of repentance. These are surprising admissions when one considers all that transpired between Yahweh and Jonah in the preceding episodes. Notice that Jonah offered sacrifice, he offered worship, he offered thankfulness, but he mentions nothing of repentance or obedience. It would be wise to ask ourselves, are we here out of a sense of duty to God, or if we will submit to God in full obedience to His will at whatever cost that comes to us? Are we reluctant to obey? Do we resist obedience? See, because the prerogative of salvation belongs to God. He doesn't save out of duty because we've done our duty. He saves because he's the author of salvation. Psalm 3.8, this may be what Jonah was quoting. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Now the word selah, that, that means we ought to stop for a second and meditate on this. You got to think about that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Richard Phillips said, The question of salvation source is an important one for both individuals and for the ministry of the church. Does salvation occur because of what we do for God or because of what God does for us? Do sinners come to God for salvation or does God come to sinners in order to save? The Bible's answer is found in Jonah's prayer, Salvation belongs to the Lord or as some translations render it, salvation is of the Lord. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, it says this, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Barnhouse concludes, he alone could have found the way to declare, declare ungodly men godly and justified. He alone could have taken fallen children of Adam and made it possible for them to sit upon the throne of the universe with himself. He alone could have taken those who were joined to the harlotry of sin and turned them into the pure bride of Christ. We can forever rely on God's merciful sovereignty and salvation. We are broken and fallen creatures in need 
desperately of God's mercy. God is not obligated to be merciful to us. He is not owe us salvation. And we are desperately disjointed in our own thinking apart from God's revelation to us through His Word. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all must once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in His mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Who are we that God would show mercy to us? Jonah's failure in all of this was humility. He failed to recognize that he was not any more deserving of God's grace than those sailors who cried out to Yahweh as they hurled him into the sea. Or of the Ninevites who abused his people but to whom he was called. So God communicated something very clearly to Jonah. God revealed Jonah's filthy attitude in the midst of demonstrating his abounding mercy. Here's what it says in verse 10. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. Jonah was spared. He was given a second chance, but he... Okay, well... All right, so it isn't every day that I get to discuss vomit in church. And as a former junior high pastor, let me acknowledge that I don't exactly hate it. To us, vomit's really gross, right? Contextually, though, this is more than gross. Vomit in the Bible is never a positive thing, and in youth ministry, it will cause you to lose the Tampico Challenge. There may be some of you that can't handle that story, so I won't tell it. But suffice it to say that if we did the same things today in youth ministry that we did in the 90s and early 2000s, that, that picture of me that you saw last week in cuffs may have been more of a reality. Um, it was, but we had so much fun. But in that culture, it wasn't this growth, gross youth ministry stunt or event. Vomit pointed to judgment. Proverbs 26.11 says this, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Jonah, in his pride and in his arrogance, has been reduced to vomit. This is purposefully humiliating. God is addressing Jonah's pride. Think of it this way. Jonah prays a pretty self-righteous prayer from the belly of the fish, and then the fish vomits him up along with the prayer. I think that God is answering Jonah's prayer by saying, your pride makes me sick. Jonah's prayer was disjointed and arrogant, but I must ask myself day after day, what makes my prayer life any better? I'm not trying to scare anybody away from praying, but when our hearts are in the wrong place, we need to remind ourselves. And, and a lot of times we don't even, 
we're not even aware that our hearts are in the wrong place, we need to continually remind ourselves. Salvation is of the Lord. And we are utterly undeserving of His mercy. We come to God in humility. This account points ultimately to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus took our shame upon himself because we are unable to bear the repugnance of our own sin. We've not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And on those two things, Jesus said, hang all the law and the prophets. We have failed, therefore, in every area. Our sins are disgusting and repugnant. Our pride is insulting and offensive to our holy God. And our best prayers are often disjointed and incoherent. Yet, in His mercy, God hears our prayers. He answers them with grace and love and saves us from our wretched selves. For salvation, dear brothers and sisters, is of the Lord. As Paul said, it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. And so may we humbly now fall into the saving arms of our merciful God as we worship Him. Let's pray. Oh, our holy God, let us not be like Jonah. Let us not run from You. Lord, forgive us when we are like Jonah, when we run from Your Word when we flee your presence. Lord, conquer our pride and teach us to live lives of mercy and forgiveness. Lord, cause us to receive what discipline you would need to give us, though it even may be painful. Let us follow you with our hearts right. Let us be obedient. God, give us your heart willing to suffer for the sake of others, that we may rightly serve and worship you with great joy. Holy God, let us see that great love that you have for us. May it teach us humility. And let us serve even the most difficult love, or the diff most difficult people with love, mercy, and humility. Let us love those around us the way that you love them. And let us be grateful for the great mercy that you have given us that overcomes our sin, overcomes our corruption, and overcomes even our bad attitudes. We ask these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.